as you're finding yourself over there to Luke chapter 5. Um, I'm, I'm thinking back, I remember history class used to be one of my favorite classes. I just love to see how things fit together and, and, and came, um, you know, one thing causing another thing and how, you know, that triggered this. And, and so it's, it's interesting. And I remember that um, Galileo, everybody, anyone ever hear of Galileo? Galileo was a Christian. He was an Italian astronomer. He was a person who was a physicist and he challenged some of the conventional thinking of his day. He challenged the traditional thinking of his day when he presented some important discoveries. He brought um, one famous discovery that a lot of us have associated with him and can still remember, even if you're a long time since elementary school and middle school and, and the time when you were studying these things. He's famous for his telescope. And in 19, oh, 1609, actually, using his telescope, he determined that there's something spectacular in our solar system. Spectacular within the heavenly bodies that we call the solar system. See, the sun and the stars and the galaxies and the things that he was observing in our very earth, there's something incredible here. And what he discovered was that the earth was not the center of the universe. He decided uh, to share that information as he discovered that the earth was rotating around something else. And we all know from school, what is that? The sun. He found that out and he started to share his ideas that the earth was not the center of the solar system, but that everything revolved around the sun. And that was not a popular idea because during his day, the earth was the absolute center in everyone's mind. That's what it was. He even went and started sharing his discoveries with the church. He shared it with Pope Paul V, but the church turned him down, and they started to attack him for his beliefs, and they started telling him, stop speaking these heresies, and they started quoting scriptures and, and making allegories and different reasons why it was not the case, taking even the scriptures out of context to, to fulfill and perpetuate their idea. See, a scripture taken out of context is a pretext for wrong theology and doctrine. It's not good. So they started telling him, no, if the sun is the center of the, universe, of the solar system and the earth is revolving around it, then that means that the earth is worshiping something else and that is idolatry. And so the church shut him down. In 1632, Galileo was called before the leaders of the Inquisition to give a defense of why he believed what he believed. He was actually charged for his writings in that Inquisition. And he was told, being 70 years of age, at that time, he was threatened with torture, if not tortured at that moment, and he was forced to recant his discoveries. He was forced to say before all people, no, this is not the truth. I was lying. I was wrong. It is not the case. But church, we know that he wasn't. We know now that he was not lying, that he was actually dead on center. He was right in his discoveries. And the church, in fact, was what was wrong, terribly wrong, because it was resistant to change. It resisted anything that was new. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? I think Jesus had his fair share 
of running into people who resisted that which was new. He had his fair share of meeting people when he was walking on this earth over 2000, like close to 2,000 years ago and he was fulfilling the call and the mission that God had given to him. He met men and women who were resistant to change and did not want to experience that which God was bringing in terms of new. And I want to explore in particular this reality, this, this challenging aspect that men and women grabbed him and, and, and gravitated to him towards and fought him on in regards to something that we're doing right now, and that is the aspect of fasting. We are in this period of praying and fasting, seeking God for a mighty move of the Spirit, asking God to move upon our needs and and aligning ourselves to Him. And so I want us to look here in Luke chapter 5, verse 33. If you're there, say amen. Just draw out some principles this morning. Luke 5, 33. And they said to him, well, let's, let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. Luke 5.33. One day, some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Hey, I don't like this new thing that I see you doing, Jesus. What's going on here? You guys are always at a party. You're always cutting it up. Jesus responded, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast. Father, I pray that you would just help us to grab hold of some truths here this morning. As we're in this new year, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, waking up, washing off that which does not belong. And putting on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're asking you for a mighty move of your spirit in this year. We're, Lord God, declaring by faith that we are advancing your kingdom and your territories, your cause and your will. That we're, Lord God, taking hold and gravitating and, and Lord God, living out, Father, what you desire and what you have provisioned in your precious name. Help us through your Holy Spirit. To lay hold of what your spirit is saying to the church in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So right from the get-go here, Jesus is met with um, some opposition. People show up to him and say, hey, I got a complaint about your followers. So in essence, I got a complaint about you, Jesus, because they are taking their cues from you. And so if they're messing up, really, I'm excited because I get to challenge you. And the disciples, um, you know, living out this practice in the presence of Jesus are challenged. And Jesus himself is challenged. Um, You guys don't fast. You guys are not fasting. See, the old system of the day, uh, right here, tells us right from the beginning, in verse 33, that the apostles of John, the disciples of John, the, the followers of John, the followers of the Pharisees, these were all men who were in the practice and habit of fasting. They practiced this, this thing called a fast. And we've given you a brochure of a Daniel fast. We've talked a little bit about this. But what, in essence, is a fast? Well, it's not a hunger strike, First and foremost, it's not a hunger strike and nor is it a health diet that you might go into and abstain from food for those 
specific purposes. For a hunger strike has a, a desire behind it to accumulate power or to advance some sort of cause. A health diet has, uh, you know, behind it, motivating it, a desire for you to have physical benefits, to, to incur some change physically, something within your body, your mind, to be a little bit better, different, more improved, more efficient. A fast, when it comes to the scriptures, when it talked about what the Pharisees were doing or intended to do and what the disciples of John wanted to do, it was not for the purposes of advancing a cause or to make their health a little bit better, but it was for the purposes of something spiritual. But it's a problem here because they are meeting Jesus looking at an old paradigm and looking at their own ways and their own practices and they are not aligning them with what they see in Jesus and there's an issue. See, the, the Pharisees were in the practice of, of, of fasting twice a week. These guys would fast twice a week, not because they were mandated to, because when you look at the Old Testament, there's only one day that the whole nation was supposed to actually call a corporate solemn fast, and that was on the day of propitiation, the day of Yom Kippur, the day uh, that they would celebrate collectively what God had done for them. But yet the disciples of the Pharisees who wanted to make their religion known, who wanted to be, you know, dedicated and, and devout, they made it a practice to fast two days a week. And this was not something that was just in their repertoire and in their practice because it tells us in the New Testament, um, if, you, if you look at the disciples of John, they're fasting. If you look at the Essenes, these guys are very, very devout and they are fasting. There's a community in the, in the Dead Sea that was uh, actually very devout and there was this book called the Christian Manual called the Didache. And in that document, it says, do not fast like the Pharisees who are full of religiosity and who fast for empty gains and, and they just want to show off. Don't fast even on their same days, but you guys should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. So there was this idea and this concept to do this thing, to abstain from food, to set themselves apart, a time for them to be able to dedicate themselves to the Lord to show their devotion for spiritual purposes. The Pharisees have defiled that practice. John the Baptist and his followers are trying their best to fulfill it. And here comes Jesus and his disciples, and they're just partying it up. There's no fasting. So, the question becomes, if I look at this text in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus gives them a response, he establishes a few expectations. The question is, when should we fast? If Jesus is doing one thing, the Pharisees another, the followers of John, something similar, when is it that we are supposed to do this thing? And Jesus responds to them as they're asking the question with a word picture. He says to them, hey, I want you to picture a um, wedding feast. I want you guys to understand this reality, okay? Here's the question. Can the guests of a wedding feast, the guests of the bridegroom, can they mourn, can they fast when the bridegroom is with them? 
The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. So the question there he's inviting them to do is think of a wedding. Can anyone picture a wedding right now, a wedding reception? Maybe you've been married, so think of your own. Or if you haven't been married yet and you're hoping, Jesus, send me my person this year. Um, then you know what, just think of one that you have uh, gone to, okay? Just picture it. What is the general mood that you have at a wedding reception? It's happy. It's joyous. It's an occasion of celebration. I remember at my wedding reception, even though I spent a long time taking pictures with my wife, it was great, but I remember that there were people laughing. There were people chatting, there was people talking, there was people dancing. Yes, there was dancing at my wedding. There was a good time being had because it was a joyful occasion. I do not remember any people besides the table of Natalia's old boyfriends. And I'm just kidding, they weren't there. There was no mourning. All right? There was no one there crying because she was off the market and I was off the market. Okay? No, there was a, a joyful time and we were celebrating. Because a wedding is a place of celebration. A wedding is a place of joy. It's a place of happiness. It's a place of feasting. And his question, you know, with his question, Jesus has them picture something. He's making a couple of connections right from the start. As he says, think about the bridegroom. Here's the first connection that he's making with the people there. He is wanting them to put in their view straight on, full on, right on the table, that the general connotation, the general feeling, the mood associated with fasting is mourning. It's not one of happiness. It's not one of, you know, oh, great joy, so let me go ahead and fast. But the general mood was one of mourning, of grief. Fasting was an expression of desperation. It was an expression of distress and dissatisfaction. It was an expression of brokenheartedness. That's why if you look in the history of the Bible in the Old Testament, the Israelites fasted in the bereavement of King Saul in 1 Samuel. First Chronicles will relate the same story. Hannah fasted in her distress and desperation for a child. First Samuel chapter 1. Samuel, Jonah, and the other prophets, they fasted and called the people to fast in repentance and brokenheartedness over the sins that they had committed and the division that they were experiencing between them and God. There's this general sense of bereavement, of loss, of grief, of mourning all throughout the scriptures when you think of this reality. So fasting was something that you did when things got heavy. Turn to your neighbor and say, things are heavy. Someone's fasting. That was the general belief. Secondly, through this word picture, when Jesus says, hey, can the bridegroom be present and the guests be mourning, be fasting? He is establishing this second and most important connection, and that is this. The long-awaited bridegroom is here, and he is I. The long-awaited bridegroom is I. I am he. I'm the one that you have been waiting for. See, throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets have poetically described God and captured the words of God in a fashion where we see that God is the husband and the church, his nation, is his bride. That he wants to uh, relate to his people as the husband and they are the bride. He is the lover of their souls. He is the one that will fulfill them. He is the one that will have the most intimate relationship with them. They are his people. All throughout the Old Testament, 
Testament, that poetic um, metaphor and theme is there. God, the husband of Israel, what the Old Testament prophets anticipated and people longed for and yearned for. Now Jesus shows up on the scene and says, hey, I am the one. I'm him. I'm here. So I am here. So if that is the case, if a wedding is a place of great joy, if he is the one who has been longed for and yearned for and now he has finally come, people have been seeking for him with all their heart. They have been waiting for this moment and now the moment is here. How in the world at that point in time can somebody anywhere, anybody at that moment say, I'm going to declare a fast. I'm going to become sorrowful. I'm going to become so depressed in this moment. No, the disciples who had eyes to see and ears to hear, they finally realized what was right before them. And the disciples of the Pharisees, these men who were learned scholars, who were seeking and searching, and yet they made their religion their God, their idol, they missed what was right before them for they did not have eyes to see or ears to hear. And they were playing the funeral song while the disciples of Jesus are singing the processional, the excitement, and they're singing praises to God. The disciples were way too excited, way too exhilarated, way too happy to fast. That's why it connects with John chapter 3, verse 29, which says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. The disciples are rejoicing. Can somebody say, I rejoice at the voice of my bridegroom? Jesus is the one. And so he's making these connections. Fasting is associated with sorrow. And the bridegroom is I whom you have waited for. I am here, therefore there can be no fasting. So we go on to verse 35. If in the presence of God, if God is in their midst, the disciples could not fast, then the natural thing is to think about this. Well, what happens when he's not here? And that's what verse 35 says. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Although the disciples were rejoicing at the moment, although my people right now are excited and, and, and they are celebrating, don't you worry. There'll come a time when they won't be doing so as much. There'll come a time when they will be more sorrowful. Well, they will be in mourning and in grief. There will be a time that they will begin to fast. It's just not right now. And so many have gone on and commentators and Bible scholars have, have d divided and, and discussed what was he referring to. If they were not to, to fast when Jesus was on the scene, when should they fast? And some have argued that, you know what, they were supposed to fast for the days that Jesus was between his death and his resurrection. For those few short days that Jesus had finally left, the bridegroom is no longer around. He has been crucified, buried, and he is not here. He is not on the scene. They were to be fasting. And they say that when Jesus was raised to life again, though the morning you know, brought new joy, the pain and the sorrow of the evening, of those dark days that he was in the grave, that morning, that sorrow has gone away. And now the reality of Easter morning makes it so that there is a new joy. Yes, there is a new joy. There is a new possibility that joy is possible because of the reality of the resurrection. I believe that wholeheartedly. 
But let me just tell you this. I'm not satisfied with those commentators and those scholars' answers that it was just fasting for those three days. Because if it were, then I wouldn't find the apostles and the disciples in Acts all throughout. I wouldn't find Paul in his letters describing his many times and methods in which he fasted and he mourned. I would not find the fact that Jesus Christ, who is the bridegroom, who is no longer here, who has prophesied of his second coming, who says that when I return, I will be the bridegroom and I will retrieve my bride, the church. If he is the one who is coming, then I believe that this is now the time in which we should fast. This is the hour by which we should press in and seek his presence. You know, if the disciples were not fasting at Iconium and at um, uh, Antioch and Jerusalem and all the other places, if they were not fasting, then maybe I might say, okay, if Jesus did not say that I am the bridegroom coming home again to retrieve my bride, I would say, fine, no problem. I'll go with your answer. But church, I think wholeheartedly that now is the time for us to fast. Because Paul says this, hey, although Jesus Christ is here with, although he's given us a promise, although before he ascended into heaven and finally left, before the bridegroom went to be with the Father and prepare a place for us, he says, I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit. Yes, I believe wholeheartedly that the promises of Matthew 28, that he is with us to the very ends of the age through his Holy Spirit, that he is guiding us and teaching us and training us and leading us into truth concerning him. I believe in that. He is with us in his presence but yet Paul says he says that the people of God in 2nd Corinthians 5 8 he says we would prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord I would prefer to be with God absent from this body to be with him because I want to be with the bridegroom so I believe that this is the time for us to fast it is established for us to do so right now while we wait for his return. So Jesus is trying to change some of the old thinking that the people are experiencing. And he wants to tell them first and foremost, you guys got the timing of fasting all wrong. I'm here now, celebrate with me the reality. Come into new life. Be as Nicodemus who saw me in the middle of the night and showed up yearning and hungering to, 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 to meet and discuss and talk and hang out with the Messiah, to know the things from above. I want you now to rejoice in the fact that I am here, but the day is coming when you will fast. Now let's get into the why of the matter, because I think Jesus wants us to establish this. If we're going to experience an incredible, powerful year with God, I feel that God wants us to realize some things related to the importance, to the impact, to the effect of, of us fasting, why it's absolutely critical in this time that we are living in, this church age. Why should we fast as we wait for him? I'll give you two reasons shortly. But let me just say one uh, thing and debunk a reason why many consider doing it. I know we put together prayer requests and needs and desires that God would step in and move and have his way in our lives. And we are going to continue um, crying out to God and praying over these needs. There's no doubt about that. But let me debunk something for you right now. Okay. Some view fasting as a tool to manipulate God. That's what they see it as. 
It's a tool for them to change God. I'm going to change God and change a circuit. I'm going to utilize God in a certain way. Maybe you accepted the 21-day Daniel fast challenge invitation with the hopes that you're going to change something within the spiritual realm of God and move God's hand in a certain way. Yes, pastor, sign me up. I want to do this fast, and I'll, I'll do this unpleasant thing at the very beginning of the year so that God can change something, so that God will open up that door for me. I'll curb my appetite right now for the beginning of this year so that God will heal this ailment. I will take one, of the te- one for my team. I will take one. I will sacrifice one so that God will be able to fix my spouse. God, I will do whatever it is. I'll push through the hunger. I'll push through the, in, uh, the uncomfort um, of, of this time, the discomfort discomfort of this time i'll go on this fast to get god to fill in my blank friend tell your neighbor a fast is not a bargaining chip a fast is not a bargaining chip it's not your leverage against God. It's not the tipping point that you're going to be able to finally put that, you know, stick underneath and dislodge something and say, this is my leverage against God. If we were thinking that this is the case, then we got to go back and reread the story of King David. If, if, Fasting is a tool, a mechanism for us to manipulate and change God, then David is owed another child. Because when David commits his adultery with Bathsheba, when he then goes and covers it up, what he did, and he tries to hide what he has done, God shows up on the scene and says, what you have done is not right, and you have sinned before me. And as a consequence, sin has a consequence. The end of sin is death. As a consequence, the child that you have conceived, that child shall die. Now, I don't understand all of God's ways. And why he decided to do the things he did. But I do know that sin has a consequence. And so what does David do? David, maybe in his mind, he says, you know what? I'm going to change this circumstance. I'm going to show my devotion. I'm going to step into a fast. So he humbles himself. He starts to pray. He gets down low. He fasts. He won't eat. He spends time with God so that maybe God will change this circumstance. God will change this outcome. God will go back on his word. I can manipulate him into doing something else in this situation. And friends, let me just tell you, unfortunately that was not the case and that child did die maybe some of us think like hey if i go into a a season of praying and fasting maybe i'm going to earn something maybe i'm going to now have watch this god owe me something friend let me just tell you god owes you not a single thing he doesn't owe me a single thing He does not owe me a single atom, nothing. He owes me absolutely squat. Everything that I get from God or do not get from God is providence by his incredible grace. Everything that he fulfills and establishes for us is through the mediating grace of Jesus Christ. And so fasting is not your tool in changing God, then why should we do it? If it's not the tool by which we can change God, let me just tell you this, it's God's tool for changing you. Fasting is God's tool for changing you. It's his tool for leveraging you and realigning you and prepping you for what he wants to do, what he wants to say, how he wants you to live, what he declares to be good, what he values and esteems. It's his tool so that you can humble yourself and say, God, your way and not my own. It is his way. So if, if that is the case, then you got to understand this 
idea and this dot that's being connected. It's God changing you. So he says this, you guys should fast. Verses 34 and 38, he goes into a parable. He responded, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not, right? Then he goes on, he says this, verse 36. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch would be even, wouldn't even match the old garment. And do, do one... And, and no one puts new wine into new wine skin, old wineskins. For the new wine would burst in the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. Jesus tells them this parable because he wants them to understand this. If fasting is a tool by which God changes you, then you need to start using this tool ASAP because there's something critical at stake here. Back in those days when people heard this parable of the garments and of the wine, uh, wine skins, they would have understand it, understood it in a whole, you know, expediently, expedient way. They would have gotten it right from the get-go. Because here's the deal. Back in those days, they didn't have 17 coats, winter coats, to pick from. They didn't have a walk-in closet of shoes and, sh- and shirts and outfits and purses and all these different things that they could pick from and decide what they were going to wear that day. They most likely had one or two outfits, and they had very meager means. And so they would have understood this right away. A person with a tattered and ripped and torn and, and soiled garment would not say, oh man, wow, thank you, you're going to give me something new? Well, actually, I don't need all of that. I just, I'm going to take a piece, can I cut out a piece of that new fabric, of that new shirt, that new tunic, that new pants, and I'm going to sew it onto my own. They wouldn't do that because if they did, it would ruin both. Now you have a new tear and a hole in the new garment, and now you have an old garment that's going to get even worse because have you ever noticed this phenomenon? If you put something brand new that you just bought of fabric in the wash, in the dryer, that sweater, that dress, man, I've ruined so many of my wife's clothes. I'm sorry, honey. There's something that happens called shrinking. The new fabric is not adjusted. It's not, it's not in its final state. And so if you take the new and you take a tear out of it, you patch it onto the old, when you put it in the wash and that thing starts to shrink, it's going to pull the surrounding fabric around it and now the old is even more holier. Not in the spiritual sense. But it's got an even worse problem. Similarly, to drive the point deep, after talking about this idea of shrinking, Jesus goes on and he tells them this reality in the concept of the wine, in the wineskins. If you are to take wine, the, the, the juice of the, the grape, the product of, of the grape, of the vine, and you put it inside of a wineskin, you would do so because you want to control the oxygen within that place. And you want it to go through this process of fermentation. The grape juice then becomes wine. And as it's doing, then that process will expel some gases. It will create some pressure. And as it does that, it needs a new wineskin that is pliable, that is flexible, that is able to, you know, ebb and flow with the fermentation process. You put it in an old, brittle, hardened wineskin, and then the thing bursts. You lose both the wine and you lose the wineskin. 
And so, what Jesus is talking about shrinking in one, he starts talking about expanding in another. And here's the bottom line reality, church. Why do we need to fast? Why does Jesus liken fasting and the time and the reason with these parables? Because here's the reality. You cannot put the newness of God, the new nature, the new mind, the new thoughts, the new attitudes, the new doctrines, the new beliefs, the new calling that God has for you in the old framework of your life. You cannot add the newness of God into the old ways of man. You cannot incorporate what God wants to do in you today with what he has done in the past and what God has you know, seen you live and experience in lifestyle and choices and attitudes from times past. The old does not accommodate the new. He doesn't want you to just say, I'll add that on. See, what God has come to do is when Jesus stepped on the scene, he came to make the old dead things come alive. It's like the the robber who in the middle of the night saw a man coming down um, the road. And this man he did not know was actually a priest going to his rectory. And he was going back home and the robber comes up to him with gunpoint and says, hey, your money or your life? And the priest goes into his pocket, and as he's going through, the robber sees the the Roman collar on his shirt, and he says, oh, Father, I see that you're a priest. I'm sorry, you can go about your day. The priest decides, well, you know what? I met with this moment of grace. Let me extend it. He decides, I have a candy bar in my pocket. Let me give it to the man. Hey, sir, here's a candy bar. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. And the man says, oh, Father, I'm sorry. I do not eat candy during Lent. See, Jesus did not come to add new things to the old nature. He didn't come so that the the emphysema-bound chronic smoker, he can add to her life a new breathing exercise. He did not come so that the thief could curate his targets. He did not come so that we would be able to just add something of God into the old nature of man. He came so that we could say, I get rid of the old and I accept the new. I step into the newness of God. And you know what the best way for you to do that? You need to start putting your flesh to death. That's why Paul says, hey, you need to renew your mind. You need to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your holy and pleasing, acceptable act of worship to God. Renew your mind by the transforming of it. Do not conform yourself to the spirit of this world, to the strategies of this world. Why? Because the world will tell you that this is okay, and that is okay, and this is right, and that is noble, and that is not what God is calling you to. He wants you to reject the old and take on the new. And I found that it's very challenging, very challenging to be living out this reality, putting on this new Christ without first putting to death the flesh. Jesus calls us to fast. The day is coming when I'm not around. They are going to fast because he wants us to consecrate ourselves and to step into this period of sanctification, to step into this season of putting dedication in the process and saying, Lord, I will not let my old nature, my old man, rise to the surface and have control. I will, Lord Jesus, submit myself and quiet my appetites. I'll say to my flesh, shut up, you. This is the way that I'm going to walk. This is what I want to do. This is what I need to do. If you want to experience more of God's power and presence, you need to put the flesh to death. And fasting is a great way to say, hey, who is in control? He is. 
Now you can fast in a whole bunch of different ways, whether you do a Daniel fast, a straight-on fast, you do a full fast, you do a fast just with waters and liquids, that's okay. There's a lot of different ones in the Bible. Go read it. Jesus doesn't talk about which one they should do. He didn't say to the Pharisees, they will one day be fasting like Daniel. They will one day be fasting a full seven-day fast, 14-day fast, 21-day fast, a 40-day fast like I did. He doesn't say any of that. He just says they will fast. So the bottom line is, hey, pick one, find one, make it work for you, and start doing it and putting your flesh under control. Tell your flesh, hey, you go this far and no further. No, I'm dedicating myself to God. Leonard Ravenhill said that, you know what, how can we control, how can we, you know, how can we experience more of God if we can't even turn off our TVs? Why are we to fast? Because we need to experience God's presence and the fast realigns us and it gets us to be around him and understand it. It starts to change us, our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires. Maybe in the beginning you're excited the fact that, hey, I overcame the fast. I was able to go without food and you start praising yourself. Well, you do it often enough and then you start saying, wow, that's not the thought I'm having anymore. Now I'm aligning myself more with God and I'm thinking about this person and I'm praying about these needs. I'm thinking beyond myself. I'm stepping into the things that I couldn't do before. I'm now doing the things that I felt like wasn't possible in my life and too scary and too daunting. God is stepping in and rising up faith within me. See, God doesn't love you more because you fast, but when you do fast, you start to step closer into the presence whereby the word of God can actually make a difference in your your heart and grab hold of your soul and change you from the inside out. You don't just gain more of God's presence and his love. That's already there and given to you, but you become more aware of it because you tell your spirit, man, you have the pride of place right now, not the flesh and all of its desires. I've taken a long time to just bring out that simple reality that what God is calling for He's calling you to let go of the old and take hold of the new. Putting on the new nature is not an easy feat. It requires the mortification of our flesh. It requires us putting some things under dominion. And it's not going to happen by chance. God has told us that if we realign our hearts to him, that he would fill us. Our hearts. His word in the psalm says, open up your mouth wide. And if you put it in the context of fasting and shut out your stomachs, then he will fill you, as his word says in Psalms 81. There's a reward. There's a blessing because we start aligning ourselves to the very purposes of God as we do step into a period of fasting. Let me just give you one more. I know I'm over, but just, just give me a few more minutes. Why did Jesus say this? In the reality of the fact that he is the bridegroom, in the reality that he is going to be taken away, but one day returning as the bridegroom, I feel that the fast is important for us to be able to experience God and feel his, his power, enablement, as we live out the process of sanctification. But I think that the fast could be something that is also prophetic in its nature. And here's what I mean about that. Some of us want to experience more about God, right? We keep talking about how God is going to move and how he's going to have his way and how God's going to pour out his spirit. Well, look at this in verse 30, in, in verse, uh, the last verse of this uh, parable. He says to them, verse 39, but no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new. The old is just fine, they say. The Pharisees were so satisfied with the old ways 
They were satisfied with their old religion. They were satisfied with what they were doing. Like a person who drinks wine. I don't drink wine, so I don't know this, but they say that the older the wine is, the better it is, the tastier it is. All right? I don't know that reality, but here is the deal. That's exactly what the Pharisees are experiencing. They, they are okay with the old ways and their old dedications and their old you know, uh, structures and religiosity, and that's sufficient enough for them. But Jesus is coming to give them something new. And if you stop and think about this, when God was moving on the scene and the people were hungry for his presence before he arrived and while he was there, and it said that he, we are supposed to be hungry for him until he returns, that we're supposed to be ready and present and waiting and expecting him to move, then here's the reality. We have to meet God with a new sense of dedication and, and steadfast resolve to see him move in our lives. And the fast is something that does that. If we want to experience more of God in our lives, then we need to do what was necessary to experience him in the first place. Okay? If you stop and think back to you know, um, the prophecies of old, Joel speaks in Joel chapter 2 of a great prophecy when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, right? And we Pentecostals, we love that scripture. We hold on to it. Why? Because it reminds us of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we connect that as Peter did in Acts chapter 3 when he starts preaching to the people and telling them what is happening in the day of Pentecost. He reminds them of the prophecy. We talk about God pouring out his spirit and giving, you know, signs, miracles, and wonders. As God will, you know, infuse people with dreams and give visions to people and, and burst out in repentance and, and a mighty move of God will sweep through the nation. We are calling for God to revive the nations and revive our region and revive our church, are we not? We want more of God in our lives so that we could be men and women of valiant prayer, that our prayers would affect much and fulfill much. We want all of these things. Well, let me just tell you, church, you're not going to get that if you want the next level anointing you got to do next level anointing things and the fast was something if it was required back in the day if you just uh, indulge me for a second go to Joel chapter 2 in Joel chapter 2 he says that there's going to be all these incredible things but look at the things that precipitated the outpouring of Joel chapter 2 which was fulfilled in Joel's day but didn't have the full fulfillment until later on and still is to be fulfilled fully Here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 12. That is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give your hearts. Come with fasting. With what? Weeping, mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate. Jump down to verse 15. Blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Gather all the people and the elders and the children, even the babies. Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Let the priests who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep between the entry room to the temple and the altar let them pray spare you people lord spare your people lord don't let your special possession become an object of mockery don't let them become a joke for unbelieving foreigners who say has the god of israel left them church if god for the outpouring in the days of joel required prayer and fasting, dedication and intentionality, a new level of, of yearning for people to press into his presence and seek his glory and seek his power. If he did the same thing in Acts chapter two, if you jump to Acts chapter two, what was Jesus telling them to do? Wait in Jerusalem from the promise of the Father. Stay here until I come. Do not leave. I shall come. What were they doing? They were praying. They were fasting. They were seeking God. They were in one accord. They were seeking God in passion, in dedication. They were intentional 
intentional about seeing him move and finding him faithful and receiving his promise. They were dedicated. And then Acts chapter 2 happens. And then that room is shaken. A mighty wind comes and tongues of fire starts falling down on every heart and every mind and every person. They start prophesying the wonders of God. And the men around the city who are gathered from near and far are hearing the gospel, hearing the words of the Lord like we read in the Psalms, that all the works of God will proclaim his glory. They start hearing the mighty deeds of God and they find the fulfillment of that word is now taking root and taking place. But yet some things from Joel chapter 2 did not happen in Acts chapter 2. The sun didn't go dark, and and it didn't become blood red. All the things and the signs that are in Joel chapter 2 did not happen yet, because that will happen in the great terrible day of the Lord when he comes back as the bridegroom. So here's what I want to get to you. Could it be, could it be that maybe for us to experience this mighty revival that we're always saying we want... Could it be that we need to start spending some time in fasting and prayer? Could it be that we need to actually get serious about this thing? Because if it was required in the first, in the second, why would it not be required today? If it was required back then, why do we think that we're going to get it through cheap grace? If it was required that there was a cost to discipleship, a cost to fellowship, a cost to seeing the move of God, why should we believe that we get a pass and we get to experience God by sitting there and watching Netflix all throughout the days and nights, binging this show and that show, spending all of our hours on Netflix, spending all of our time chasing this dream and that dream and filling up our bank accounts and not spending time in the prayer closet, not showing up as a solemn assembly, not stepping in and saying, I'm going to say, no to my flesh and I'm going to sacrifice one meal and I'm going to spend time praying for God why do we expect God to move if we are not willing to move with them and do the preparatory work that is necessary see we want God to move but we need to move ourselves move our butts move our lips and get going in the process join him in the struggle right now is the time you're gonna not be fasting when you're in heaven with him one day and let me just tell you this, this, guys. If you look at the parable of the ten virgins, it says that five of them were ready and five were not. Some of us are preparing and making plans and saying, well, I got time. I got, I got a season. I'll figure out. God's got grace. He's got mercy. In the, in the tribulation, whenever that does happen, I'll have an opportunity to come and, and, and step in and be re- saved and redeemed, even though I wasn't ready and I didn't go up with God in the rapture. If you look at the parable of the ten virgins... Five of them were let in, and the other five who says, I'm going to now go get ready, I'm now going to get the oil, I'm now going to get prepped, I'm now going to get everything I need to experience the presence of God, the power of God, the mighty move of God in my life, and be welcomed into his fold. Now I'm going to be, it says that the door was shut to them, and he says, I don't know you. So church, now is the time, it won't be then. Now is it not when he comes back is not the time not when we're with him in glory That's not the time you won't be praying then you won't be fasting them You won't be evangelizing them. now is the time for us to get to work Now is the moment that we need to press in And we need to experience what god has in store for us Now is the time and so you know what he doesn't get into the details of how long and how much and how often and which way is the right way He says my disciples will fast 
So, hey, can you just start doing it whatever way you want to do it, but you do it with a heart that is for God and not to show off to man. God, I want to give this time to you, and I'm going to actually tell my life and my body, my mind, my soul, my habits, my attitudes, my old nature, that I'm no longer in control and that something is going to change this year. Something is going to be radically different about me, and I'm going to be more intentional and more dedicated in this because, God, I will not expect you to do something in my life that I'm not willing to step alongside you and sacrifice to receive. See, God is not asking us to just do things out of religiosity. That's what the old Pharisees were doing. He was asking them, hey, right now rejoice in me, but when I'm gone, you start dedicating yourself because it will be difficult without me, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I will help you do the same. You need to submit your sin nature you need to step in, and you need to prepare. Church, I believe that God is coming back. He is coming back. Now, some of us want to argue about when and where and how and what the timing will be. One thing I do know, when Jesus finally does return and we're with him face-to-face in glory, there will be a lot of wrong people. And I guarantee you, I will be one of them. Because I don't have it all figured out. I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm seeking to understand his word as best as I can. I don't have all the answers. Neither did Jesus when he was here. He says the time and the hour is for the Father. But now that he has been with the Father, I believe for certain he knows when it is and he's getting ready to come. But I believe that Jesus Christ is very patient. He is waiting. Why? Because he wants the most amount of people to accept the gospel. He wants the most amount of people to be ready when he does return. That's why if you turn over to James chapter, uh, chapter 5, he says this, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. God wants us to step up and get intentional about praying, fasting, seeking his presence in greater tenacity and passion because as we do so, we are creating a a preparation in the ground so that more and more souls can receive the gospel. More and more people will be found ready when he does come. He doesn't want to come now and take the few. He wants to come later and take the many. He wants us to do the work so that we can prepare. Is God waiting for me to fast so that he can come back? No, but I believe that God is waiting for us to fast so that there will be a mighty outpouring of his Holy Spirit as he's promised. And as we wait upon the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and we see that happening, more and more men and women will be ready to respond to Jesus Christ. Why do we fast? Because it kills the flesh and it advances the kingdom. I don't know what God is calling you to do this year, but I believe that he is the bridegroom that has paid the price, who is yearning to be with his bride. He has been patiently waiting. He is eager to come. He is eager to come. But why are we not eager to meet him? That is the question that I want all of us to realize with this. And so my question I leave you with, does this make you want to fast? And if it doesn't make you want to fast knowing that God has a new reality for you, then you're missing the mark. If it doesn't make you want to fast so that God can actually come back and make all the wrongs right, to wipe away all the tears from every eye, and to establish his final kingdom, then we're missing the point of this thing. He didn't come to make my life my best life now. 
He has come so that we can expand his kingdom and bring salvation to those who are lost. Will you stand up with me on your feet? Father, I pray that you would bless every heart here today. I pray, Jesus, that as you are right now working this word in our hearts, as twisted and convoluted as maybe I have brought it to your people, I pray, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would actually be the one speaking in hearts today. And that you would convict hearts right now, Father. Lord, I pray that the men and women who have not come to know you, that all that they are experiencing is sorrow and grief and they have no hope in the future. The good news of the gospel is this. Jesus has come. He's paid the price. He has made every right wrong, uh, every wrong right, and he has corrected the way and established relationship between you and the Father. And he is coming home soon to take us to be with him. You don't have to live in darkness, in sorrow, and despair, but you have hope through the resurrection of Christ. If there be any person in here who's never said yes to Jesus and invited him into their hearts, I invite you today, change that reality. Today, just invite him to, to be the Lord and the Savior of your life. Pledge your heart to him and say, I will dedicate myself. There are things like that thief who is robbing the priest, but yet still observing certain things about good character. God, I pray that you would change all things and give them a new reality. And for those of us, God, who've experienced you, but yet we've been, Lord God, satisfied with the old levels of your presence, of your power, of your anointing, of consecration to you. I pray, Jesus, that you would stir us and make us uncomfortable because there is something at stake here. Lord, I pray that you would convict every heart today, that they would take the next step of their faith journey, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would dispel all the fears and all the, all the concerns about fasting. Lord, those who are not able because of medication and life and, and health concerns and issues, Lord, I just pray that you would give them wisdom in different ways where they can step into consecration to advance the kingdom of God, whereby a mighty move and outpouring. Jesus, I pray that you would help us. Does it make you want to fast? Lord, I pray that you would answer that question, yes, but not just yes for someday. God, that we would make it practical in our lives today, this year. Help us, Lord, in your precious name. We're going to open up our altars again for prayer. If you want prayer for anything, we believe that God is able to meet your needs and fulfill his word. I invite you to come. We'll pray alongside you. But may God strengthen you. May he guide you. I just ask you, consider something that you can do this very week. To silence the flesh and say yes to God and dedicate yourself. I believe that he will meet you when you're faithful to him. May the love of our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you as you go from this place. In God's mighty name. Amen.